Welcome to the Next Level Finance Podcast. This is your host, Tony Kane. Today, I've got Peter Thornhill, the author of Motivated Money and one of Australia's smartest investors. Peter's been investing in the share market for over 40 years now, and he's ridden the highs and lows. And it's great to have Peter on today because I know there's a lot of nerves out there and everyone's a bit worried about, you know, how things are going to pan out. And, you know, I certainly... Um, believe that things will recover but that we are in for a rocky a rocky road you know for the next sort of three to six months so i'm sitting here at the moment it's three o'clock in the morning i'm looking at the u.s stock exchange and you know i'm trying to figure out you know what my next move is so it's really great to have someone like peter on today who's been through these ups and downs and he's going to talk us through why we shouldn't be scared and why we should always continue to be investing so it's my pleasure to introduce peter thornhill peter thanks for coming on the show today no, I'm delighted to be uh, have the opportunity, Tony. And you're quite right. It's times like this when the going gets tough, the tough get going. You're absolutely right, and I think it's going to get a little bit tougher before it gets a little bit easier. So, Peter, I first became aware of you when my brother Joel gave me your book, Motivated Money. And as a young bloke with not a lot of idea and just getting into the finance world, you know, almost twelve years ago now. It was. I really appreciate how simple it was, and that really was a catalyst for me to start investing, and and subsequently has helped me to educate so many other people on the fundamentals of the market. So thank you for that, mate. And so I'd, what I was hoping you could do today is to take me back to the start and let me know how you got into finance and you became to get in a position to author a book like that. Well, it was a, a funny start. Um, I failed my last year at high school, so I'm clearly not the sharpest pencil in the box. <laughs> and, uh, my dad got me a job as a sewing machine mechanic in a factory and anyway after about six months I crossed that off my bucket list and got a job with uh, one of Australia's leading insurers at the time National Mutual had uh, fun there for a while and then met Frida and we married and decided that we do what most young Australians do pack our bags and have a working holiday in Europe. Yeah. We're going to have six months in the US, six months in uh, London, six months in Europe, and then come home. Well, that stretched out to 18 years. <laughs> Just a little bit over. Yeah, missing in action. Um, <laughs> it was that accident. Uh, it was just one of those things. And we ended up staying in England. Our three sons were born there but it was working in the financial services industry in the UK that with hindsight, I can say, was, was the, the big change for me. Um, started working as a clerk in a merchant bank and eventually um, drifted into the financial planning industry in, in its very early years, in the 70s. Okay. Dealing with individual clients' wealth and what I learned there uh, was embedded and it wasn't until we came back to Australia in 1988 and I would t tell people how I felt investing worked most successfully and I was told I was an idiot and didn't know what I was talking about. <laughs> and Pete, that would have been obviously, you know, a year after the 87 crash. So how, how, um, and how did you feel like this, the sort of the, the feel was, from compared to now with that sort of time in the markets after you'd come back from the UK to, to Australia post a crash? Well, it was interesting, Tony, because I came back and I was telling people, and you're absolutely right, we got back to Australia in April 1988, and I'm 
working for a fund manager now in Melbourne and uh, I'm standing up in front of audiences telling people, you know, to invest in shares. <laughs> match the dry cleaning bills that I had as a result of <laughs> You would have been the crazy man there, mate. Absolutely. But, Tony, the thing was that it forced me to re-examine what I had taken for granted in England and I, I re-examined and I realised that I was right and it turned me into the monster that I am today. Well, and tell me more about that monster, Peter, because I, I obviously know from doing a lot of research and following your stuff, but how has that worked out for Frida and yourself? Well, it's been stunningly successful, uh, eating our own cooking. Um, when we got back to Australia, my total investment income was about $900 a year, and they were two dividends from the shares that I um, had purchased working for a company called Henderson Unit Trust Management in England. When they went public, I ended up with shares, and so it was two dividends from them. And I've uh, kept the record in motivated money of the last, oh, what, 30, 30 odd years, nearly 40 years, in, yeah. in uh, every financial transaction that we, we have undertaken. That would be a big spreadsheet, Pete. Oh, it's huge. It's about bytes <laughs> now. Yeah. It's a wonderful piece of history. Yeah, exactly. I, I can pull down a report which shows our income every financial year. And so the first in 88 was about $900. And now the income is around 400000 There you go. Right. So, and, and, and Pete, if I can jump in there, you, you said earlier on, like you didn't, you know, we're not talking about, you know, with all due respect, you said you didn't finish high school. So how much of this and how much of that growth? So like for the listeners out there, um, if I'm not mistaken, Peter, Frida and yourself, every year when you get out of bed on the 1st of January, you, before you have to go and do anything, you know that you're going to earn a, a minimum of 400000 in dividend income. Is that correct? Correct. And, and like you said, Pete, how much of that has been brains versus discipline versus good luck, would you say? Um, discipline above all else. Uh, there's been no good luck. There's been no inheritances. We educated our three sons privately. When the boys were born, Frida took on a full-time career as a support for me doing what I was doing, you know, the dollars okay. work, the dollars. Yep, yep, yep. And, uh, she took on the very important role of ensuring that our three sons are emotionally intelligent and supported me in my efforts. And it was just a matter of um, my two golden rules uh, spend less than you earn, borrow less than you can afford. And if you can do that for long enough, I think you can uh, almost guarantee um, financial security. So Pete, I love, I love a little, I love a gold nugget. So, a nugget. so if you can just expand on those two rules really quickly, because I think um, they're not to be glossed over because although they might sound simple, they're, they're really the cornerstone of wealth creation, right? Absolutely. Um, I, you know, I find it fascinating these days and I mean, I'm showing my age, but um, young people today expect to have everything today that it took Frida and I a lifetime to achieve. Yeah. 
Yeah. And, and like you said, from, from your um, explanation, so we're talking about the two rules are spend less than you earn, which sounds really simple, but it's incredibly difficult for, um, and I'm a millennial mate. So I know that we cop a lot of flack. Um, and I'm, <laughs> I'm, you'll hate me saying this, but I'm a little bit of a have your cake and eat it to person. But if, um, for my listeners, they know this, well, I talk about take care of business first. Once you get paid, I want you to make sure you've, you've done all the hard stuff in terms of pay off, your, pay off all your debts, um, reach your commitments, but then you need to make sure that you're investing before you're spending. So um, I, I think that sort of is an issue where it's, it's, it can be fixed up a lot easier, but people make it harder for themselves. Um, and the second one is probably a bit more complex. If you could explain to the listeners what you mean by sort of borrow less than you can afford. Um, well, it, now in the current climate, the importance is having dry powder. So I've used gearing uh, in equities uh, very successfully over the decades, A, to wipe out non-tax deductible mortgages when we um, had to move house, um, and, also, and now to basically I can borrow from the bank um, and the interest rate is either the same or lower than the cost of the borrowing. So I can uh, borrow money from the bank, buy the bank shares and the dividends plus the franking credits pay me far more than I'm paying in interest less the tax deduction. Hey, I love that. Um, and I want to get a little bit tactical with you today. And, and um, for our listeners out there, um, dry powder is essentially what Peter's referring to is you've just got cash ready for, for times like these when, when, when stocks are cheap. And um, Peter, I know you're a big advocate of, and, and I run a mortgage broking business. So I had the same, um, obviously I get paid when people borrow money, but one of the first questions that I get asked from a lot of my listeners and, and clients is, how much can I borrow? Which I think is the wrong question. I think the first question is how much can I afford to pay on these loans? Because that's ultimately the key from, from, from what I can gather from 40 years of investing from Frida and yourself. It's not, you know, getting in and out. It's just having the ability to stay in the game. Is that a, is that a sort of fair assumption there, Pete? Yeah, absolute key. The, uh, you know, this whole, well, I'll give you a, a couple of definitions, Tony. Yep. The, the best definition of the word invest that I have managed to find was in the modern encyclopedia for children that my parents bought for us when we were kids. So that, that dates back 60 odd years. Yeah. And the definition is the use of money productively so that a regular income is obtained. And I would The use say, of money productively so that a regular income is obtained. Correct. Got it. Yep. Now, the alternative to that, which is the one that most people practice, speculation, buying and selling in an attempt to benefit from a fluctuation in the price, sometimes in an antisocial way. Got it. Got it. And, and when you, um, if you can sort of circle that back to your second rule, being borrow less than you can afford, yep. when you, are you sort of, is that a rule because you want to make sure that you're borrowing the right amount so you never have to sell those equities. Is that right? You can afford to hold long-term. Is that what's the sort of the fundamentals of that rule? Absolutely. 
yeah. and yeah. Uh, you know to us it, it, the the income that we receive is more than we need so we spend less than we earn um, got it the borrowing less than you can afford ensures that we've always got dry powder for a situation like this um, excellent excellent and i'm gonna i'm gonna ask i'm gonna uh, without sort of you know asking for your 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 pin code later on, Pete, I'm going to uh, get a little bit tactical with you, but just for a second, Pete, if you don't mind, I'll have a lot of listeners out there who, especially in times like now, they would think that the share market is an evil beast and it's just, you know, it's a waste of money. It's a waste of time. Could you, um, you know, I've got a lot of confidence in the market. You know, I, I think that you, I think that investing for me is exactly the, I, I agree with that definition. Um, obviously I don't have a leanness towards property or shares. I just like good quality assets. I don't mind if it's a business, a share port, a share or a property, but for clients and listeners of mine, Peter, who are for lack of a better word, shit scared of the share market, you know, and they've, they've been thinking about getting into it. What would your advice be to them in the current climate? Well, the share market itself on a daily basis is basically a barometer that measures the degree of fear, greed, anxiety of human beings, plus the machinations of computer share trading, short sellers, day traders. Every man and his dog has access to this thing called the share market. The share market fundamentally has two primary functions. The first and the most important is to enable companies to raise capital. The second, and probably equally as important, is to provide a mechanism for you and I to exchange for value ownership of those companies. But people don't focus on that. People are focused on the daily, daily mountains of misinformation, useless information being shoveled in their faces. They love it when it goes up. They hate it when it goes down. And this is an incredibly unsatisfactory relationship. And for so most people, the reason they do not like the share market or fear the market, fear is based on ignorance. Knowledge is power. Do you think though, Peter, and like I, talking to you, right, a very successful investor, right, they're, they're from, you know, there is no doubt the success that freedom yourself have had is, is, is just an amazing result. And I, I look at Warren Buffett and he, he seems to keep it incredibly simple, right? And why, if the methodology has been proven time and time and again from, like, from people like yourselves and Buffett, why do we have so many speculators, do you think? Is it just that greed, greed thing? Largely, and for, for many people, the whole concept of you know, buying and selling in an attempt to benefit from a fluctuation in the price, the measure of one's success is usually, um, you know, oh, I paid this for it and it's worth this now. Well, I'm sorry, that's totally and utterly irrelevant. And the, the, uh, the whole fear of the market, I just find extraordinary. Basically, the share market reflects the endeavours of the human race. Touch on that. Go, go deeper there for me, Pete, okay. um, because you're obviously a guru, but talk, talk, to, talk to that a bit more if I, if I could get you to. Okay. The businesses that we invest in are businesses that provide every one of us with a means of living. And if you're telling me that the share market's going to collapse, there's going to be no banks, there's going to be no food companies, 
There's going to be no pharmaceutical companies. There's going to be no automotive manufacturers. You're telling me that all human endeavor is going to grind to a halt? And I'd say, get real. <laughs> I love it. I love the simplicity of the explanation because what, because what, okay, what are you saying? You, I've heard you answer this question before and you've written about it on many occasions, but what do you say to the property only camp, the share market's rubbish, oh, property's the only way to go, people? Yeah, okay. I've, that, that's the other thing I've had to deal with since I got back to Australia. <laughs> genetic defect. And hold on, Pete. I don't remember I own a mortgage company, so don't go too hard, please, mate. Um, <laughs> okay, I'll try. <laughs> no, no, give us the, give us the okay. warts and all, mate, because I know people still need homes. But, yeah, I, I really would love a, your, your uh, honest assessment if we could. Okay, well, you know, from, from where I, I sit, um, Westfield, uh, well, Westfield is a – is an interesting company, but companies like uh, Lendlease, Stockland, Mervac, Meriton, do what? They build houses and apartments. Yep, now, and shopping centres and so forth. Yep. And then what do they do with them once they've built them? Lease them to businesses and or people. Them and sell them, yeah, to you and I, houses, etc. Meriton, etc. Mervac. Now... If property is the best investment in the world, why do these companies sell the property to you and I? Why don't they keep it for their shareholders? It's a great point. And what would you yeah, the reason is that if, if the property market was the best investment market in the world, wouldn't all these companies shut down what they were doing and just play pass the parcel with property like everybody else? They make their money in, in building, developing and selling to you and I. And we've turned it into a corrupt art form. Um, but the smartest property brains in Australia don't own property. Industry after two hundred, yeah. Industry after two hundred years of European settlement has finally figured out that owning their bloody supermarkets and their bank offices, etc., is an incredible waste of shareholders' funds. So they've been getting rid of their property off their balance sheets and getting the productive capital back into the business itself. And, and, and Pete, just, as a, just to sort of summarise that for the listeners, what, what Pete's saying there is, well, if, if Commonwealth Bank, one of the most popular companies in Australia, they don't even want to own property, right? You, you can't be ignorant to think that we know more than them. If they're, if they're quite happy to lease property and, you know, put, allocate their capital back into their business, you're saying, Pete, that's a pretty strong indication that potentially investing or speculating in property is maybe not the smartest Thing. Is that what we're getting at here? Absolutely. I mean, if, if it was the smartest thing, don't you think that all the world's greatest investors would be investing in property? And they're not. Yeah. <laughs> I, 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 don't, um, I, I don't disagree. What about, what do you say to the people that are listening about, okay, if we take property and, and we don't, we take the investment of property and put that to the side for a second, Pete. What are we, you know, I have, two, I have two daughters and I have a home and I love my home. And what are we, are you sort of 
happy for people to own a property, you know, to live in and raise a family as a um, general rule of thumb? Philosophically, absolutely not. But unfortunately, yep. in Australia, <laughs> unlike other <clears throat> um, developed economies <clears throat> in Europe, France, Germany, Switzerland, Holland, Belgium, England, America, you can have long-term residential leaseholds. Australia is the only country in the world that provides holiday lets for potential um, renters. Yeah, so you're on 12 months and 60 days notice to quit. It's a damn disaster. You and can't raise a family with that, can you? With that uncertainty. Correct. It, and and I, just, I know what you mean. Oh, sorry, Pete. Yeah, just, just because you own it doesn't mean it's necessarily a home because the years we lived in England, there were some rather unfortunate conversations with Australians talking to Europeans. Oh, you don't own your home. Oh, well, you know, it's not a home then, is it really? And I'm going, oh, for God's sake, pull your head in. <laughs> <laughs> but Pete, if I could... If I could um okay let's assume like like you said like in europe and asia you could you know for example like if i could get a 20-year lease or a 15-year lease I, I would be more than happy to you know go and rent somewhere that suited my family's life or, or rent the place i currently own but the but the if we if we just you know assume that property is in the australian's dna right and a lot of people find comfort in you know whether it's an achievement of owning their own home or what have you it's not all doom and gloom because like you are, and I'll, I'll, we'll go there now if it's okay. Let's assume that there are property owners out there and they're listening and they're thinking about the share market. Cause I, to touch on my methodology, methodology, Peter. So what I have a big belief in is that, you know, it, you know, in Australia, it is a great idea to, to, to own your own home, right? Albeit this home needs to be a, you need to be able to afford the repayments. And I've got a methodology around that. I don't believe your loan repayment should exceed more than 30% of your take-home pay, right? And um, I, I'm really big on my, my clients getting, you know, to a position where they can get down their loan to at least half of their property value as quick as possible. And that's literally by purely just using your rule number one and saving as much as they can. Um, and let's assume that we've got listeners out there who have got half their home paid off. They've got a really strong cash flow and they're looking to invest. That next step for me is... Um, doesn't need necessarily need to be property, but I think to grow your wealth long term, you can't just have your home. You need to build on that. So if we're if we're if we're going into that discussion around, okay, I've got equity to invest. Can you talk me through your strategy of how you've done that successfully? Yes. Uh, what what we've done is well, when we got back to Australia, we rented for a while, but we ended up buying a house. Now, obviously, we had a reasonable deposit, so I arranged with the bank a line of credit alongside the mortgage, used that to buy shares. All the dividends I mandated with the company registrars to pay straight into our mortgage. Now, remember, our mortgage is not tax deductible. The interest is not tax deductible. Our investment loan to buy the shares, the interest is fully tax deductible. So I'm using the dividends as additional capital repayments for the home loan. And as the home loan goes down, I have a flexible line of credit. 
So I borrow more to buy more shares, which pays more dividends, which reduces the home loan, so I can increase the line of credit to buy sure more shares, which buys, which pays off more of the home loan. So I've got two things working for me. One is the fact that I'm buying more shares and they're paying down the loan, but the dividends themselves are growing organically at the same time. So I've got this wonderful machine going around and around and around and wiping out the mortgage. I the absolutely mortgage, love it. Yep. I've now got the line of credit, which with the interest fully tax deductible, I've now got this monstrous share portfolio spitting out dividends. Peter, I'm smiling and uh, why are you telling this? Because I love this stuff. And, it, and what I'm going to do, and if you, with your help, can I, just, can I just do a quick case study and put some numbers around that? And you jump in if, I, if I've mistaken it. But let's, let's put some numbers around what Peter's talking about. So, Peter, I'll just use some artificial numbers here, right? So, let's say Peter and Frida, you know, in 1990 had a home worth a million dollars. They had, for example, they had a... Um, $300,000 deposit, right? So they had a $700,000 home loan. And Peter, what you're saying is, let's assume you set up another $100,000 line of credit and you yep. invested that that $100,000 into a share portfolio. Yeah, mm-hmm. that share portfolio, let's assume it was paying a, you know, a 6% fully frank dividend at 6,000 a year. You yep. were getting that straight off your home loan. Yes. And then you would then take redraw that six grand and add that to the portfolio, which means next year the dividend would be higher. And it's just a, it's just a nice flow of increasing a deductible loan to invest, which increases a dividend, which pays more off your home loan. And you know, it's a snowball, right? It starts off slow, but it's once it gets going, it really, really, it really starts to fly, doesn't it? Tony, the compounding effect is phenomenal. And the other thing you've got to remember is that I'm getting a tax deduction on the interest on the on the line of credit, which line of credit. I'm not getting on the mortgage. And for example, the t- the tax return could then further reduce the non-deductible debt, right? Yeah. For example, at the end, you know, if you got a tax cre- a tax refund, that could have, that would even enhance the, the the debt reduction on the non-deductible loan. Um, right. I love it, and Pete. That so with and thing- you, sorry, mate. Yeah, I'm getting, I'm getting a little bit excited here. So, sorry. <laughs> I just want to damp it down a little. The thing that people find it difficult to cope with is the fact that it takes time and it's boring. No one wants to get rich slow. No. No, no I know. And, um, and guys, we've got to preface this, Pete, that this is obviously not financial advice and there's a lot that goes into setting up a structure like this and you know we would highly recommend that you know you if you're not extremely savvy that you don't go it alone um but at the same time what i would hate to see peter and i've seen it you know thousands of times in the last 12 years where you've had a situation where a couple or an individual has done extremely well to a buy a property B, significantly reduce the debt to, to, eat, to either half of the property value or to sometimes zero, right? And then mm-hmm. they do nothing. And it's a real shame because it ends up costing them millions of um, dollars in potential asset growth, which therefore means they 
would have had a dividend similar to what Frida and yourself have. Now they're, you know, they're, they're buying the, they're buying the, uh, the, the steak from Woolies as opposed to going to the butcher. Do you know what I mean? It's a big, it would have been a very conservative decision to make 20 years ago, but they just didn't act on it. And, and that's why I'm so passionate about having people like you on to, you know, I just want people to know what's possible. Yeah, but Tony, the thing that I think you're, you're addressing is once people are paid off the mortgage, their lifestyle goes through the roof. And I think the quote yes. is, today's, today's pleasure beckons more strongly than tomorrow's pain. You're spot on. But Peter, even if we just took an example, right, you can have your cake and eat it too. Like, let's say you have a mortgage repayment, like a, let's say hypothetically say it's 40,000 a year, right? Which is probably not, you know, from the averages is probably pretty accurate. And you've managed to get rid of that thing, right? Mm -hmm. Let's even say that you increase your lifestyle by 20 grand and put 20 grand a year into the markets. That's it. That's a game changer that alone, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Over a compounding period of time. If it, yeah. while, we're, while we're here, right? So we're in a, and without sort of, you know, like I said, getting too personal, but okay, that's a strategy. And I'm really glad we touched on that because, and, I, and, and for the listeners out there, I'll be doing blogs and uh, YouTube videos and you know, I, that, that's I suppose that's what they call now debt recycling is one of the terms for it. So don't feel like you needed to um, be across that. I'll have stacks of videos that, that I'll come to, that I'll be able to explain that in more depth. And Pete, thank you so much for going through it. Um, if we do have the equity, we're happy with a strategy like that. How do you sort of f figure out what stocks to buy? <laughs> <laughs> Everything or hardly well, anything? Where, how do you do this? I guess in, in, indirectly, yes, buy everything. Um, I, working in the financial services industry for all those years, you know, you start to fancy yourself as uh, being uh, <laughs> a bit uh, of a stock picker. Yeah, yeah. Um, yep. I've uh, come to realise that uh, I don't know, um, and now, particularly in semi-retirement, I don't want to know all the rules associated with investing. I am not interested in uh, going through company accounts. I'm not interested in sitting in front of the computer, downloading all the um, annual reports and uh, yeah. stock selections. I've, uh, you know, this fiddling with your money, for God's sake, I've got an attractive wife. I'd rather spend my time fiddling with her. Thanks. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's a bit funner. So, Tony, what, what I do now is uh, we use the old-fashioned listed investment companies. And again, this has a history uh, for me. Um, when we came back from overseas, I wasn't sure that I wanted to make Australia my home. And so I left my pension fund in the UK. Anyway, cut a long story short. Uh, when I retired, I'd left it invested in shares, so I kicked it into uh, pension mode. One of the investments I made there is in a listed investment company. It's been around for about 100 years, and it has just celebrated its 52nd consecutive year of dividend increase. 52 years of unbroken income growth. That's well, I'm about to jump know. in because that's 
I only wanted to jump in because I know what you're going to say because you don't actually remember, but I read your book 10 years ago. I rang you up and asked you for a coffee and it was a 15 minute coffee we had in Paddington. And I'm, I'm pretty sure you're about to mention the company for the second time. And I just wanted to say thank you because since that day I have been an investor, but I'll, I'll, I'll throw the mic over to you to make the announcement. And this is not advice asterisk, but uh, who are we talking about here, Peter? It was the City of London Investment Trust. And gotcha. Yes. Spot on. 100 years. But we've got a similar vehicle here in Australia. Um, so I use the old-fashioned listed investment companies. They must have been around for uh, 40 years plus. And I'm looking for a consistency in the cash flow. Uh, what's one example? Milton, for example, listed in 1959. Never failed to pay a dividend since 1959. Every dividend has been fully franked since the introduction of dividend imputation in 1987. That's the sort of thing I love. I thought you were going to say Argo. I remember you met um, AFIC, uh, Australian, um, the Argo, Investment Fund and the Australian Foundation Investment Company. I remember that you mentioned those two to me, which have, which have been very good to me <laughs> in the last 10 years. There's another one you can add to the list, which is Whitefield. And one of the things I like particularly about Whitefield is that it is purely industrial companies. It has no resource stocks in it. Yeah, excellent, excellent. And uh, this, like I said, guys, this is all sort of just coaching. We're not recommending things, but it, I I can sort of sing off the same sheet from Pete here. You know, companies, some of these companies have been around for almost 100 years. And and like Peter said, they're, they, they're get-rich-slow companies, aren't they? Aren't yeah. they, Pete? They're not, they're, not, they're not trying to, they're not the next Facebook, but they're just solid and if you don't mind, and I can we just touch on like these listed investment companies for people who aren't sure what that term would okay. mean? All right. Well, I'll contrast them with the traditional managed fund. So you have a, a fund manager, um, and they create a managed fund, a trust, and so they take your money and they invest it in shares and you and I own a number of units in that managed fund and they distribute income, etc. The contrast is a listed investment company is not a trust or a managed fund. It is a listed company on the stock exchange. The only difference is that these companies, uh, unlike a bank or a supermarket or whatever, the sole assets of these companies are shares in other companies. So Whitefield probably owns shares in 100 Australian companies. They collect the dividends every year and they pass those dividends through to us as shareholders in Whitefield, um, together with the, the franking credits, the tax credits. And so here I've got all the diversification in the world. Um, if one of the companies went bust in the portfolio, I probably wouldn't even notice. Yep. That's the way I like it. And I love that. Mm. Peter, I, um, like you said before, like why would you or I or anyone out there of my listeners bother trying to find at any given stage who the best hundred companies are when for almost a nominal fee, you can get a company like these listed investment companies 
they can read the annual reports. These are the guys where their analysts are. These are, they're meeting with the, the the CEOs of all these companies, right? So right. they're doing all the leg they're doing all the legwork. And like you said, if there's a dud in the portfolio, it's the job of the listed investment company to get rid of that and replace it with a better company. Um, so I almost think that what with with your is your suggestion that you steer away from if you may be new to this steer away from trying to pick any stock and steer maybe more into letting someone manage tony it, my, my my comment is absolutely stay away from <laughs> yeah because the thing in in a lot of the presentations and the, and the courses that i run so many people are focused on what to, how do you know what to buy how do you know when to sell it and what are the things you look and i'm going for god's sake <laughs> the things you be focused on are your careers your family and your friends the things that are most important too many people allow themselves to become slaves to their money money is our slave it does all the hard work for us i love it and peter like, it's one of those things, right, where, I mean, it's, it's not like, if it's not your cup of tea, how, how it's, the market's way too big to, to ever know how to do it. And I think um, it's great having a chat with you about this because I don't think that the knowledge is so much out there. And that's one of my jobs with, with this podcast is that people probably don't really know that you can actually buy a listed investment company, which has the top 20 or a hundred Australian stocks. I think that's probably a big deterrent where people go, Oh, sh like shit, I don't know where to start, but I'm really glad you touched on that and, and that you have that as a sort of a, um, a cornerstone of your wealth creation, because it doesn't have to be anywhere near as hard as people make it out to be. Right. No, you're right. And it was interesting because coming back to Australia, I discovered that the listed investment companies, the things that I was familiar with in the UK, had been around here for decades, but they had such a low profile. Most people, and even today, people are still unaware of these listed investment companies that have been there for 30, 40, 50 years. And, you know, been making families wealthy throughout Australia but at so, so low key, and uh, a comment you made earlier about you know the costs. Milton, for example, as a listed company, I think the management expense ratio is zero point one three percent. Right. So if we're if we've got someone out there, right? Let's just say we've got someone out there with fifty thousand dollars. Here's your two options, guys. You can go and say, all right, I'm going to try to do my best to pick. Let's say they wanted to spend spread that across 10 companies rather so you've got two options. You can go and do your best to allocate and identify 10 companies and give them $5,000 each. Right. Or you can pay, was it 0.13% was yes. it Pete? Um, yep. To give you, to invest into a listed investment company and they've got a, a whole bloody level, probably multiple levels of analysts with, you know, six monitors each constantly managing who, what companies are in and out of that portfolio. If you, if you put you know, them next to each other as two options, I think it's an absolute no brainer that the, the latter is just a, you know, the only way or not the only way to go, but uh, for a, a novice, it should be almost the only way to go. Right. Pete? Correct. And I, I would pick you up there on one thing. They don't have a huge raft of analysts watching the stocks. The important thing for me is that the older LICs, listed investment companies, they are there and they are not trading shares. 
they are investors like Frida and I. So the turnover is very, very low, and they are there merely as the intermediate between um, me and or we and the share share market. Gotcha. And so, they would have their finger on the pulse if some yes. company, for whatever reason, is going out the back door. That they're obviously going to be across that, right? Correct. And, Correct. Gotcha. And Pete, can I um? I love it. And I'm so grateful that you've been able to share this with me because it's hopefully the listeners out there are actually starting to feel, realize, okay, well, Pete and Frieda have done it. Like he said, he wasn't a rocket scientist. It's a long game. Um, there is a way to do it easier. Can I touch on, um, cause I love the, you know, the, I love finance is my jam and I love it, but I, I don't think I love it because of the X's and O's. I love it because of the lifestyle it enables to build and my wife and I, and so many of my clients, you know, I don't invest for the, to look at screens, but I invest because I know that there's dividends there that are eventually going to give us a great lifestyle. So mate, what has investing done for you from a lifestyle perspective and how do you benefit from all this hard work and, and commitment to the, to your stock portfolio now? Um, well, I was one of four children born and raised in Melbourne. Uh, my father was TPI after the war, totally permanently incapacitated. My mother raised four children, just my father. Okay. And, uh, so there wasn't a lot of money around. Right. One of 10 children of an immigrant family that came to this country after the war. Uh, their father was the sole breadwinner in a family of 10 children and two adults. He worked on the Victorian railways. Both my parents, uh, my mother worked part-time whilst taking care of us all, uh, and they paid off the 35-year war service loan, so they ended up owning their home. Frida's parents, with Dad as the sole breadwinner, they managed to pay off their um, concrete prefab commission home that they stuffed the immigrants into in Broadmeadows in Melbourne. They paid it off, and... Uh, <laughs> You know, and I find just, it strange that people are having so much trouble these days. <laughs> it's, uh, that's because they're borrowing too much at the start, Pete. Um, well, you know, the, the lifestyle thing um, is, it's, you know, what drives the way people end up today. But those early days had a profound effect, obviously. And thankfully, and again, this is observation over the years, I observed with couples, two savers is nirvana. Two spenders is cozy cozy. <laughs> so partner A and B, two yep. savers, nirvana. What about one of it? Two, two spenders is, is just a, is a disaster. What, what, what about well, the middle no, ground? It's not, not as good, but the disaster is one spender, one saver. Because right. they're going to spend their entire life white anting all the efforts of the other. So gotcha. you're going to have, you know, okay, let's say the guy needs a bigger boat, he wants another four-wheel drive, blah, blah, or the wife needs a trophy house. They are going to spend their lives white anting and it must make life hell for, the, for a couple to go through that. Luckily, Frida and I, absolutely aligned. I say this all with hindsight. We were both savers and it is what has created the lifestyle that we now enjoy. 
Gotcha. And so that was, that was more by, you know, luck as opposed to planning. But I think, you know, if you've got people courting now or singles or even if you're in a relationship, you know, I think you've just got to have that round table conversation, don't you? And say, right, well, what are we both? And, you know, if that's what we are, what can we be if that's not what we like, right? It's not, I'm probably the spender in my relationship, to be honest, but my wife is a great saver and she's given me some, you know, I had to give myself a lot of uh, boundaries, right? <laughs> so, um, but I like working. So I, I always think I'll, you know, I'll somehow try to be okay. But Pete, what, what about, so I love, I love the terminology, right? When I'm talking to my clients is you want to invest to get yourself in a position where you don't have to say no to anything, you know? And is that where you are now? If it's, oh, I want to yeah. go on that holiday, I want that seat I mean, on the plane, no dramas. Um, yeah, it's, it is Nirvana. We, I guess, one of the things, again, I've realised over the years of presenting and talking to people, um, we've reached a stage in our life, we're not, we're not hugely wealthy. I mean, there's, you know, thousands and thousands of people, you know, richer than we are. But I think the thing that has made our lives so rich now we envy no one. Love it. I love uh, it. We are happy as pigs in mud. We can do what we want to do whenever. And uh, just one second. I don't know whether you would remember, uh, Tony, but the last page of, the, of the, the book, I think, sums up beautifully. If do I you have it handy? I'd love you to. Yeah. Go for it. Okay. I'm not going to finish this book with the obligatory, my wife now drives a Porsche, I have a Rolls Royce and a Ferrari, and we live in a multi-million dollar home. If that is what motivates you, this book is a waste of time. We live in a modest apartment. The latest model car we drive is a 2005 Toyota Corolla, having traded in our 1991 Volvo. No jokes, please. However, we can do what we wish when we wish. Rent cars, houses, boats and planes. We don't need to own any of them to feel good about ourselves. The greatest asset we have and cherish is our connection with other people and our ability to spend time with them anywhere in the world. The winter of our lives will be filled with rich colour, images and shared words. This is the dream we live. What's yours? I love it. Uh, Pete, that's a, that is brilliant. And I, I mean, you know why it's brilliant? Because it's relationship focused and it's experience focused, right? It's not possession focused. And I think it's, if that's the big, once that light bulb can go off in people's heads that, you know, time, you know, money creates time. And that if you've got time, to do the things that you want to do with the people that you want to do it with, you are a billionaire you know, in a different form of currency. So Peter, I, I really love that. Now, mate, I'm, I know I'm conscious of your time, but I, 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 I hate to go from such a high, right, of that. And I, don't worry, I'm going to come back to that later to finish off. But I need to talk to you. I'm, I'm sitting here at the computer. There's, there's charts with, you know, red red arrows and they're all pointing south. Trump's just come out last night in the US and basically put a travel ban and, and almost a trade and cargo ban on, 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 on everyone's. And that's had a really significant impact on the, um, the US share market. And I'm just looking now, the Australian 
share marketing freefall. So what do what do my listeners do? You know, we've just sort of talked about you know creating wealth in the share market, but how can they not be scared and 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 sort of avoid all this white noise? It's pretty hard to overcome when it's coming yeah. at you from everywhere. And unfortunately, this is what drives people's lives today. Um, you know, the connection with real people is you know, through a screen. Through, well, you know what it's like out there, Snapchat, blah, blah, blah. And unfortunately, all this information that's being shoved in people's faces is basically useless because knowledge is required to enable us to assimilate and use information productively. You can have all the information in the world at your fingertips, which basically we've got, but without knowledge, do you understand all this information is useless chatter in your hands? So shut out the noise, understand the basics of what you're doing. Fear is based on ignorance, knowledge is power. So knowing that the share market isn't going to disappear off the face of the planet, and that businesses are going to survive, they change, there are not many companies making wooden wagon wheels for carts anymore. <laughs> so just, you know, cool it and start facing up to the fact that to own a stake in the endeavours of the human race is the way to true wealth. Otherwise, all the people that run businesses must be idiots, mustn't they? <laughs> I think you're, I think you're right. I think everyone forgets that the share market is just a big bunch of businesses. And if you're the only reason you should be fearful of the share market is if you have no intention of ever brushing your teeth, drinking any, drinking anything, eating anything, or using any type of method of transport, electricity, or <laughs> technology, then you should be fearful. But whilst the world still needs all those goods and services, I think that, uh, the share market will all, <laughs> will always uh, be a good standard, but and that's that's probably uh, you know that's you know taking the Mickey a little bit, but people forget about that though, right, Pete? They, they do. forget that we're just investing market, in companies. Yeah, the share market's talked about as almost you know a, a, a living organism in its own right. The share market is just the bleeding marketplace, you know, where we exchange for value, ownership of these amazing businesses that are that are there, and all. Mm the volatility um, I joke with audiences and I say to them look I understand why you're concerned about the share market going up and down so when I become Prime Minister I'm going to shut the share market so, <laughs> I, I, know, I know it performs two important functions so I'll open it one day a year you can all come in trade your pants off and then bugger off and I'll see you in another 12 months or what about you could just, why don't you just keep it open, but just shut out the, um, the, you can't, the, the publicizing of the performance. So people can trade, but no one's got any idea of the, how, where, where it's at, because that's where the problem comes in, right? It's, it's, it's Everyone, too much information. Oh, and by the way, the flip side is that having shut the share market, there's a whole lot of, uh, uh journalists and reporters who, uh, don't want to go back to hairdressing. So I've got something <laughs> So what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to, because I am the Prime Minister, I'm omnipotent and I have the technology. I'm going to make it compulsory for everybody's house price to be run across their television screen 10 times every night. <laughs> I am going to, I'm going to make it up just like they do. 
that's so that's so good because no, you're right like my whilst i'm sitting here with you this morning there's every likelihood that my house has either gone up by 20 grand or down by 30 grand who bloody knows right depends which valuer i'll get on the day so which so and people are extremely comfortable with those fluctuations while they sleep but ignorance they, is bliss tony ignorance is bliss but um Pete, I, I um man i just want to so acknowledge you and say thank you for coming on today I, and i know that um and i know that what you we've talked about might seem you know um i suppose academic for, for us but i can guarantee you there's listeners out there who have been you've a you've probably reduced their fear you know and like i said you've been investing through the good the bad and the ugly and there's going to be there's going to be some worse days ahead but there's going to be a whole stack of you know extremely amazing days weeks months years in the markets but from what I can gather with you, it's all about getting in the game, staying in the game, and just having the confidence to know that the world needs good companies and that, that's never going to change. And it's not about, you know, when you get in, but you've just got to get in and stay in. Is that like a fair summary? Peter, or anything to add there? Absolutely. Um, fair summary. And as I try to remind people, because we never learn from history, we are doomed to repeat it over and over again. And after the global financial crisis, I said to people, okay, you know, it's all wonderful now, that's, that's done and dusted, but uh, are you ready for the next one? And they look at me like I've got two heads. <laughs> so, as night follows day, we will go through a period of euphoria and the market will generally become overvalued. You will then have a perfectly rational correction, followed by a recovery of the market to another high, followed by a perfectly rational correction, followed by, and thus is the last 200 years of stock market history repeated over <laughs> and over again. And an insight into the next thousand years, right? Um, yes. And Peter, I, I, uh, not to embarrass you here, but just to give the listeners, you know, a vision, right? So when Peter talks about the lifestyle that Frida and him have, you know, the dividends of 400,000, I just want everyone out there to picture that you're waking up every Monday and someone's putting $7,500 into your bank and saying, have, have fun, guys. I'll, I'll be back next week with another check for you. Like, I think if you can think of it like that, it's amazing the things that you can do with that type of income without having to work for it. And when I say work for it, you've worked for it, Peter, in terms of hmm. income and dedication. But the end result, like it's, it's amazing. It's, it's fantastic. And, and the lifestyle, Tony, as, is, as I pointed out in the book, it's not about, you know, what you own. It's about what you can afford to borrow. So Frida and I went back to the UK on holiday and uh, I rented a 66 4.2 E-type Jaguar and we spent a week touring the gardens of Devon and Cornwall in a British racing green E-type Jag. I rent the lot. I'll never own a boat. Um, cars, I love. I'm a petrol head. And I rent the stuff. Turbocharged, four-wheel drive, Alfa Romeo, brand new, tear-arsing around France in it. <laughs> Rather than having to drop one hundred and fifty thousand on it, you can you can drop five grand and and, and do your best with it. Right? I, I love that. Like, you know, it's like these people who um you know have a lot of holiday homes. It's like, well, do you really want to go to the one place for the rest of your life? M my wife and I want to lap do laps around the world with our kids. But if we are, if we had one holiday home, well, we're sort of 
we'd feel guilty going elsewhere. But like I, I've stayed in some of the most amazing Airbnbs, uh, Peter, that are worth millions and millions of dollars that I would never, even if I did, I couldn't afford, but even if I did have the money, I wouldn't. But why would you buy that thing when you can rent it for, for, for a week, you know, and get the experience? So, um, Peter, I, I want to say thanks again. You probably haven't realised how much you've helped people reduce fear motivate and visualize how good life can be and uh so mate thank you so much for being with me today i um i know that we could we could talk for hours and uh it's really it's the perfect timing for this podcast to be recorded and delivered because everyone's running scared at the moment but um not so i won't say the smart people but the the measured and rational people are just they're just realizing it's just a moment in time that'll pass and you know it's a normal correction and, and things will get back on deck so mate thank you so much for being with us today my pleasure tony thanks for the opportunity no worries and guys just um just to finish off there so i would highly encourage that you go out and grab peter's one of peter's books the book that i love is motivated money it was almost like my um initiation into the stock market it was the simplest book that i've ever read still to this date of how to explain how, how the market works and uh if you wanted to catch peter live he's actually got a live public speaking event which is going to be next saturday the 21st of march it's going to be at the Camperdown Ridges on um, Missivan Street there. Um, so tickets are available online. Just head over to Peter's website, which is motivatedmoney.com.au forward slash public speaking. So I couldn't recommend this high enough. You know, if going, you know, to spend $210, you're going to get hundreds of thousands of value, which is going to significantly change the course of your life. So Pete, mate, thank you again. And um, mate, I'm going to annoy you for a bit of a, a touch base in a couple of months, if that's okay. Yep. Absolutely fine, Tony. You take care, mate. I'll talk to you shortly. Okay. Thank you. Bye. There you go. That's a wrap on another Next Level Finance podcast. Thanks so much for being with me today. If you haven't already, please do me a favor and subscribe. And if you're feeling generous, put a rating down there. It really helps to spread the love and spread the word of the Next Level Finance podcast. So I hope you enjoyed today. Don't be too concerned. We're going to go through a tough time, but we'll all come out the other side just fine. So take care, look after one another, and we'll catch up soon. Thank you very much.